The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we open God's Word this morning, let's make sure we are in fellowship, that we have uh, dealt with any unconfessed sins that we need to, if, if necessary. First uh, John 1, nine says that if we confess, that means to admit or to acknowledge our sins directly and in privacy to God the Father, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's prepare ourselves with a few moments of silent prayer before we open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together as a body of believers to worship you this morning as a function of our royal priesthood. Because of the unique features of this age in which we live, we have immediate access to you. We have a supernatural way of life based upon a supernatural empowerment from the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we continue our study to understand what you have revealed to us about our spiritual life, our Christian walk. We pray that we can understand these things under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and we're going to continue our study of what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. Now, we started last week with an introduction to the whole concept, and we will probably just conclude the introduction this morning. One of the greatest areas, I think, of confusion among pastors and among theologians is in the whole realm of sanctification. Now, what makes this so confusing for many people, theologians not accepted, is that about 90% of what people say is the same thing. It's that small 10% or 5% difference that is so difficult to pin down. So, When you listen to any three or four or five people, they may all basically say the same thing or sound like they say the same thing. And yet, if you know what you're listening for, you will pick up on a few things and perceive a few things that will distinguish them one from another. But unfortunately, most people do not always understand these, these minor differences. And they're not always minor because what we discover is that It is in these one or two or three distinctions between the different schools of theology that make all the difference in the world. Am I turned on? Am I getting sound? Is the needle okay up there? Yeah? Okay. Get a hearing aid, Joe. Okay. Sanctification. Let's have a quick review of what we covered last week. We introduced the doctrine of sanctification, which is a theological term which describes the Christian life. If you want to have one word to hang that on, it's the Christian life, the Christian walk. The unique dynamics by which the believers move from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity in the church age. How is that accomplished? What are the means that God uses to bring that about? And how, uh, and what does it look like? Unfortunately, as I said, there's much confusion, and there's a lot of confusion today just in in fact about the whole ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and how he relates to the believer's life. So we reviewed the last time the various ministries of God, the Holy Spirit, in the life of the believer, efficacious grace, regeneration, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, not an experience, but which takes place at the moment of salvation for every believer, Uh, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit, 
and the the bestowing of spiritual gifts and the filling of the spirit that does, that's a quick summary of what we covered last time now when we get into this particular section of galatians the apostle paul has been building an argument from the beginning of chapter 3 related to the spiritual life i want to remind you because it's important and i'm amazed at how often this verse is overlooked in the analysis of galatians as a whole, verse 3 of chapter 3, Paul said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being matured by the flesh? And what that implies is that there is a way that looks like the spiritual life, an overt spirituality, let's say, which is really a pseudo-spirituality. And that, that is too often what happens is people confuse morality with spirituality. They do not understand that whatever the unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. And the spiritual life for the church age believer is a supernatural way of life and demands a supernatural means of executing that spiritual life. And no one is asking the question, much less ask, answering the question, how do you distinguish morality, which is a product of the flesh, the sin nature, and spirituality. What is the essential difference? How you can tell whether what's going on in your life is a production of God the Holy Spirit or simply a production of your own flesh and your own ability. So we begin our study here in 516 where we have the mandate, but I say walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This section is bracketed by two different commands, which appear to be the same in English, but they're different in the Greek. In verse 25, we read, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, the word for walk there in verse 25 is stoikeo, which means to follow in the track of someone, to follow in the path of someone, to follow in the footsteps of someone. And so there is a slightly different nuance between the two. So having begun our study last week, we started off with the doctrine of walking. This is introduction to walking by means of the Spirit. And we need to begin by looking at the metaphor of walking that is used throughout the New Testament to describe the spiritual life. First of all, we looked at the basic words that are involved. We saw that there were four words. The two main words are peripeteo and stoikeo. Two other words that are used in the Greek are poiruo, which means to walk, to go about one's daily activities, to proceed and to travel, and orthopedeo, which means to walk straight or walk in a straight path. But the key words that we're going to focus on and the primary word that is used in the New Testament for the Christian way of life is the word peripeteo. P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O. It's the basic word used for physical walking, but is also used figuratively or metaphorically for the conduct of one's life. The metaphorical meaning represents the entire panorama of a person's life, including both the thought life and overt action. Now, let's think a minute about this analogy. I want to build on something we said last week. We didn't go this far with it, but I want to expand it a little bit. Physical walking is one of the best forms of exercise. Whenever you walk, it develops a circulation in your, of your bloodstream. It improves your breathing. It has an aerobic effect on your uh, cardiovascular system. It supports the regular elimination of waste, and it strengthens your heart muscle. Now, let's take those factors and develop the analogy to the spiritual life. When it comes to walking in the spiritual life, first of all, it works out all the muscles of the spiritual life, which are the spiritual, the spiritual skills or the stress busters. So when you walk step by step with the Spirit, you are exercising all of the spiritual skills. So you're developing the muscles of the spiritual life. Secondly, it increases 
the circulation of doctrine in your soul. The more you use doctrine in your soul, the more you will develop the ability to utilize it. That will increase. The less you use it, the more you will lose it. So as you uh, use it, it will increase the circulation of doctrine in the soul. Third, just as physical walking has an aerobic effect on the body, it has a spiritual aerobic effect and improves the inhale and exhale of Bible doctrine. The more you walk by means of the Spirit, the more you will be taking in the Word of God and the more you will be applying the Word of God. Fourth, it will eliminate the waste of human viewpoint in the soul as you renovate the thinking of the soul. It will eliminate the waste of human viewpoint and replace it with divine viewpoint of Bible doctrine. Fifth, in the process, your soul will be strengthened or edified through the construction of the soul fortress, which protects and defends the soul from the outside pressure of adversity and prosperity. There's a lot more we can do and probably will do with the whole metaphor of walking in the coming days, but that just gives you an idea of the many different ways in which walking can help us understand, the physical act of walking can help us understand the spiritual concept. Now, that's peripateo. Stoikeo means to walk in a straight line, and it is used metaphorically to mean march in step, march in ranks, to walk in agreement with, to walk forward in an orderly manner, and is used primarily for moving forward in the spiritual life, following the mandates given in the Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the second thing that we saw when we moved beyond basic etymology was the central issue of walking in the Scripture. It is one of the key terms used to describe the characteristics of the believer's life. The overall mandate is to walk worthy. This is repeated three times in the Scripture, and I find that whenever the Holy Spirit takes the time to repeat something, then we need to pay attention to it. Walk worthy as mandated in Ephesians 4.1, Colossians 1.10, and 1 Thessalonians 2.12. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That is motivated by grace orientation. When we have grace orientation, that means that we understand the grace of God, that God has done everything for us and we merely accept it or receive it by faith. As a result of understanding what God has done for us, we are moved to what? Gratitude. In the the Latin, the two words are related. They are etymologically related, so there is a connection between grace and gratitude. And out of grace orientation, we are moved to gratitude for all that God has done for us, and then we realize that we should live our lives in a manner consistent with His plans and purposes for us. He saved us, we will see, for the purpose of production of good works. Now, when we analyze the use of the word walking in the New Testament, there are three categories we can summarize the the various mandates. First of all, we have the phrase in plus the dative, or sometimes just the dative, of instrumentality. I'm going to start with sphere, the dative of sphere. We are to walk in the day, Romans 13.13, or in the light, same concept, Ephesians 5.8 and 1 John 1.6, negatively, we are not to walk in the sphere of darkness, 1 John 1, 7. So our Christian life is to be in a certain sphere. We will analyze what this means later, but just we just want to summarize the concepts right now. We are to walk in the day, Romans 13, 13, or in the light, Ephesians 5, 8, and 1 John 1, 6. Secondly, we are to walk in newness of life. We are to walk in the sphere of our newness of life, and this is in Romans 6, 4. Third, we are to walk in love, in the sphere of love, and this is in repeated twice, Ephesians 5, 2, and in 2 John, verse 6. We are to walk in good works. 
We were saved for that purpose according to Ephesians 2.10. We're to walk in good, the sphere of good works. That's divine good produced by the Holy Spirit. We are to walk in wisdom. Colossians 4.5. We're to walk in truth. 2 John 4 and 3 John 3 and 4. Negatively, we are not to walk in the emptiness or vanity refers to the vacuum in the soul created by human viewpoint. We are not to walk in the emptiness of the mentality of our soul like the Gentiles do, Ephesians 4.17. We are not to walk in craftiness, 2 Corinthians 4.2 says. The Greek word is panergia, which means deceitful cunning. And the passage, the context refers to utilizing the Word of God for our own personal gain, power, prestige, financial gain, or personal approbation. And fortunately, that's true for many people who go into the ministry. They give in to the lust of the sin nature. And before long, they're discovered there in the ministry to improve their power over people, to increase their the size of their bank account, to uh, get approval from people. And they, they rely on that feedback from people, and they're constantly seeking approbation. So we are not to walk in deceitful cunning. Now, the next way in which this phrase in is used, the Greek preposition in plus the dative is used to express instrumentality or means. And there are two concepts here. We're to walk by means of faith. This is the faith rest drill in 2 Corinthians 5.7. And this is contrasted not by sight, which is empiricism. This relates to the ultimate way in which we think, the basis for our thought. Do we base our thinking on the Scriptures, or do we base it on human viewpoint systems of knowledge such as rationalism or empiricism? And I'm talking about the ultimate, the final basis for our thinking. Is the ultimate authority in our life the Word of God or, it is hum- or is it human experience or human thought? When the Word of God is more real to you than your experience, than your feelings, than what you've been taught in school, then you are beginning to understand what it means to exercise the faith rest drill. The second is in our own passage here in Galatians 5, 16 and 25, and that is by means of the Holy Spirit. So we have in plus the dative of sphere to describe the sphere in which we are to walk in light, newness of light, love, good works, wisdom, truth, not in the emptiness of minds, craftiness. And then we have in plus the instrumental dative of means by means of faith, not by means of sight, and by means of God the Holy Spirit. Then we have another prepositional phrase that is often associated with walking, and that uses the Greek preposition kata, K-A-T-A, kata, and we have, and that means to walk according to a norm or a standard. To walk according to a norm or a standard. We are to walk according to the norm of the Holy Spirit and not according to the norm or standard of the flesh in Romans 8.4. So according to the Spirit, and not the flesh, Romans 8.4. According to the standard of love in Romans 14.15. And then negatively, not according to the standard of men, 1 Corinthians 3.3. That refers to carnality and the unbeliever not according to normal human standards. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, not according to 
uh, a disorderly or licentious manner in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Not according to an unruly, disorderly, or licentious manner, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. And then Ephesians 2, 2. Not according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And that's referring to the lifestyle of the unbeliever. So that's a summary to see how critical this term walking is in describing the Christian life. That was all under point two. I don't want you to get too lost in all the points and subpoints and everything else we're going to cover. Point number three. In Galatians 5.16, walking by means of the Spirit is contrasted with walking by means of the flesh. Now here's the point. Throughout Galatians and the New Testament, walking is used of one of two states. You always have this contrast between two states or conditions. One is in the sphere of the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. The other is flesh. But there's other words that are used. In terms of the spirit, spiritual life, other terms that are used are light, promise, faith, and grace. Now, these are all contrasted with darkness, law, and antinomianism. Antinomianism means without law, and it refers to unrestrained immorality or licentiousness. So this is an important point to understand because there are a lot of people, and we've run into a few situations like this here in the last year, that there are people who believe that the spiritual life is all, all the passages in Scripture talk about a process. And because you have a sin nature, you never do anything from pure motive. So there's always a little bit of the sin nature involved in everything. So there's a, a mix. You're walking with a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness. You have one foot on one side and one foot on the other. And yet what we see in the Scriptures is there's always this stark contrast between two states. And the question that we're going to ask is how much does sin does it take to really violate the righteousness of God? See, the idea that we're a little bit righteous, a little bit spiritual, and a little bit carnal doesn't take into account the nature of sin in relation to the integrity of God and its impact. So we have to realize that the Scriptures clearly identify two spheres or states in which we can live. Point number four. Now we're going to start a detailed analysis of the passages that relate to the believer's walk. The basis for the believer's walk is his new position in Jesus Christ. So this is the basis for the believer's walk. This is in Romans 6, verse 4. So turn with me now. We need to look at the context as we look through Romans chapter 6. Now, this is a very important passage for understanding the spiritual life. In fact, the, probably the text that has the most significance, other than Galatians 5, is Romans 6 through 8. Now, of course, we don't have time to do a detailed exegesis of Romans 6 through 8. We're just going to look at a little bit here at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. The context of the command in verse 4, we'll look at Romans 6, 1 through 6, or rather not the command, but the description in verse 4. Paul begins with a rhetorical question. What shall we say then? having discussed in chapter 5 the grace of God in giving perfect righteousness to us and imputing righteousness to us on the basis of what Christ did on the cross, that despite our sinfulness and carnality, Christ died as our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins. So if grace abounded so much when we were rebels to God and sinned, Paul is going to head the rationalization off at the pass with this rhetorical question. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? I mean, if we were sinners and we got that much grace, well, let's just continue in sin so there can be even more grace. That's the rationalization. And I think at some time or another, every one of us, if we're honest, has used that to rationalize and justify some carnality in our life. Paul says, may it never be, meganoita, one of the strongest negations in the Greek language. No, he rejects that as being a totally invalid inference. And the question he asks is, how shall we, that is believers, who die to sin, still live in it? How shall we, who died to sin, still live in it? Now, we have to ask the question here, what kind of death is Paul referring to? You see, too often people just superficially jump to some sort of simple solution. And the Bible has many different categories of death. This isn't uh, spiritual death here or physical death. Those are the first two categories of death. You have uh, spiritual death, physical death, sexual death, positional death, carnal or temporal death, operational death in the life of the believer, and eternal death. Which is it? Well, here we're going to see that it's clear from the context that this is talking about positional death, which is defined as the believer's identification at the point of salvation with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are positionally identified with His death so that His death on the cross is tied to and produces our separation from the enslaving power of the sin nature. This is positional death. This is not talking about the eradication of the sin nature. Now, you see, there are those in Christianity who have looked at this and said, we have died to sin. That means, and they take the term death to mean cessation of existence. But the Bible never uses death to refer to something that has completely ceased from existence. It's talking about separation. Even in physical death, what happens is the soul is separated from the body. The soul, the real you, does not cease existence, either for the believer or the unbeliever. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, one of the greatest heresies that have come out in the last couple of hundred years came from John Wesley, and it was the doctrine of perfectionism. And the idea was that, that the believer was to experience a second work of grace, sometimes called a second blessing, after salvation, and that was referred to as entire sanctification. Now, if we were to chart this, it would look like this. Here's the cross, and at the cross you're saved, but you're just saved from the penalty of sin, And then you continue to live your life, and at some point after that, you have a crisis experience, dedication, whatever. There's different ways in which it's described. And at that point, you are elevated. You receive a second work of grace, and you are elevated to a higher plane, which is called entire sanctification. Now, this doctrine was picked up by the holiness crowd in the United States in the middle to late 19th century. So you have one step of grace at the cross, and then you had a second step here. And then along came a group towards the end of the 19th century and said, okay, if you have entire sanctification, then the next step, the third step, is baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be signified by speaking in tongues. That's where the tongues doctrine came in. And the first person to speak in tongues was Agnes Osmond, on uh, January 1st, 1901, started the 20th century. So you had the three-steppers, that's what they're called. And their big term is going to be entire sanctification. Then in 1910, you had a pastor, Pentecostal pastor out of Chicago came along, and he started teaching a doctrine called the finished work of Christ. He came out of a Baptist background and not a Methodist background. And he said, look, you get it all at the cross. The only thing that comes after the cross is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is signified by speaking in tongues. And these became known as two-steppers. And most Pentecostals are of the two-stepper variety today, although you still have some that 
that are definitely three-steppers, and they're the ones who will talk a lot about entire sanctification. That's just a little historical background for you so you know where these people are coming from. They tend to take phrases like, you have died to sin, as a cessation of the sin nature. The problem is, that's not what this passage is saying in context. This concept of death to the sin nature is further described in the next verse, Romans 6.3. Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and there we have the very important phrase, the verb is baptizo in the Greek, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, plus the phrase ace. Preposition, ace, E-I-S, and then Christ Jesus. Now, every other time that we see a reference to baptism, where the ultimate goal, which is expressed by the preposition ace, is Christ Jesus, this is a reference to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And we have studied that in detail. And to just briefly summarize it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was prophesied by John the Baptist. And he said it would be future. But when you get into Acts 10, Peter refers to it as having already happened, and so we isolate Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, as the time that the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit took place. Now, when John the Baptist prophesied, and when Jesus also prophesied of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, they said that that Christ would be the one who baptized by means of the Spirit. And Spirit there was put in the instrumental case. Then when you get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says we have all been baptized, instrumental case, by means of the Holy Spirit. Now what happens is the Pentecostals come along and they say you have one baptism that Christ does it in the Gospels. He will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. And then you have another baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which refers to the Holy Spirit doing it because we've made a grammatical error there. It's the same phrase. It looks like this in the Greek. It is in plus the dative of instrumentality of pneuma. Pneuma is the Greek for the Holy Spirit. Now, agency or or impersonal means does not reflect, as I've said before, upon the personality of the one involved. Now, this is a problem that we got into in an earlier generation that was fighting tooth and nail to preserve the doctrine of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So that every time they saw a phrase like this, They took it as agency, because the Greek category is personal agency, and they said because the Holy Spirit is a person, it's got to be personal agency. But the mistake was that these are grammatical terms. They are not terms that reflect personhood. And you can have a person as the object of an instrumental dative, and the person is being viewed grammatically as the means by which the goal is accomplished. Now, Christ is clearly the performer of the action of the verb in the prophecies in the Gospels. He will baptize you. It's future tense. Then in Acts, or in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you still have that same phrase. This phrase is used when it says, He will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. It's more correctly by means of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, it's in pneumatee. It's the same phrase that's used in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And we should translate it the same way. It's a passive verb. The subject is not stated in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So it's very clear that the subject should still be Jesus Christ. And so what happens is, at the point of salvation, Jesus Christ utilizes the Holy Spirit as the instrument for identifying the believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection, the doctrine of positional truth. So we should more most accurately translate the phrase, the baptism, by means of the Holy Spirit. He is not the one who performs it. 
Christ is the one who performs it and utilizes the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. So Romans 6.3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And the significance of baptism, as we have seen, is always identification. So we have been identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, specifically in verse 3, the death of Christ. Therefore, let's draw a conclusion from this, Paul says, we have been buried with him through baptism, identification into death, in order that... Now, why did all this happen? We have a purpose clause here. There is a reason for this. There is a purpose for your identification with Christ's death on the cross. God has a specific plan and purpose for that identification. What is it? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's the phrase. It's an aorist, active, subjunctive, a peripateo. And the reason it's in the subjunctive is because it expresses the contingency of the believer's volition. It's potential. You may choose not to walk in the newness of life that you have. That's why it's in the subjunctive mood. It's up to your volition whether or not you are going to walk the Christian life. The purpose for your salvation, though, was for you to walk in newness of life. So that's the basis for the believer's walk is what has happened positionally with us in terms of our identification with Christ. That frees us from the power of the sin nature in our life. It breaks the enslaving power. This is what we see in the next two verses. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, and that's a first-class condition, certainly we shall, also, shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Because we know this, because we know a point of doctrine, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with. Again, it's a subjunctive verb indicating the potentiality dependent upon our volition. That our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's the point. See, if the sin nature were dead and gone, that would no longer be an issue. If the sin nature were, were extremely limited or were paralyzed in some sense, that would no longer be the issue. So let's summarize this in four points. This is all under point four, the basis for the spiritual walk. Point number one in terms of summary for this point. The basis for walking, i.e. the Christian way of life, is our identification with Christ's death, that is, positional death, which happens at the instant of salvation. It's not a second work of grace. At the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, whether you realized it or not, because it's not experiential, at that instant, the power of the sin nature in your life was broken. Now, the issue is your volition. You can put yourself back under the power of the sin nature through negative volition and yielding to the temptation of the sin nature, but you now have the freedom to go in another direction. That's why Paul has said in Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Point number two. Positional death frees us from slavery to the sin nature, according to 6.6, but it does not free us from the sin nature. We are freed from the slavery to the sin nature, but not freed from the sin nature. You still have a sin nature. When your kids trust Christ as their Savior, they will still have a sin nature. When, if you have a sin nature, then you still have the capacity, the potentiality of committing any sin that any unbeliever can commit. And sometimes you can do it longer and better because you're in reaction to God, and so it just sets a little more. Positional death frees us from slavery to the sin nature, but does not free us from the sin nature. We're not freed from the presence of the sin nature until phase three, glorification, when you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. 
Point number three, in terms of summary of this fourth point, the potential is there for every believer, but it is activated only by his volition. Whether or not you walk in newness of life is up to you. It's up to your volition. Whether or not you are going to utilize the power provisions of the spiritual life, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and whether or not you are going to utilize the mandates of Scripture, doctrinal orientation, as the basis for your life. So the potential is there for every believer, but it is activated or realized only by your volition. And point number four in terms of summary of this fourth point, the goal or purpose is to no longer obey the dictates of the sin nature so that you can advance spiritually. That's the purpose. It's not so you can get away with sin. It's not so you don't have to worry about the consequences of sin anymore because you will. God promises that He is going to discipline you because He loves you. You are now in the royal family of God and He has a purpose for your life and that is, as we have seen in Ephesians 2.10, to walk in the production of good works, works of intrinsic value. And God will discipline you and do whatever is necessary to bring you to a point to encourage your positive volition. And if you remain negative in carnality, then you will be taken out under the sin of the death and have a very miserable life. All of that is under point four, the basis for the spiritual walk. Now we come to point five. Point five talks about the sphere of light in the believer's life. The sphere, we are to walk in the sphere of light. Walking by means of the light. So this is point number five. Walking by means, or excuse me, walking in the sphere of light. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. This is a very important verse and passage to understand the dynamics of what it means to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Now, much of Ephesians, especially starting at Ephesians 4.1, much of the second half of the book of Ephesians is dedicated to developing the whole concept of the believer's walk. We're not going to do even a cursory summary of those three chapters. We're just going to look at the specifics of the mandates. Ephesians 5.8 states, For you, that is, you believers, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. It's very interesting when you look at the Greek here. You have the phrase, For you were formerly darkness, and then in the second phrase, the verb is left out. That's called an ellipsis. It's, the second phrase says, but now light, for emphasis. You leave out the verb for emphasis. You were formerly darkness, but now light. The emphasis is on your present status. You are light. And then there's a command. Walk, the present active imperative of peripateo, walk as children of light. Now, this is crucial because here we, we learn that even though we are positionally light, let's go back to our top and bottom circle chart. This will help us to understand it. Up here is our positional reality. We are light because of our position in Christ, our identification with Him, and our position in the family of God. We are called sons of light. And remember, we saw this term, those of you who have been in the John series, when Jesus said He was the Son of God, the significance of that was that this is an adjectival phrase. It doesn't necessarily reflect descent as much as it, in, in the Hebrew idiom, it reflects, an, it's an adjectival description. So that someone who was a rebel was called a son of disobedience because he was characterized by disobedience. Barnabas was called a son of encouragement, not because his father's name was encouragement, but because encouragement characterized Barnabas' life. So when Jesus said he is the son of God, he is claiming deity. When we are called sons of light, 
The Scripture is saying you are light. This is your status, your position in Christ. This is who you are as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there is the mandate to walk as children of light, as, as, to walk as children of light, which implies that you can not walk as children of light. In fact, Paul makes this clear back in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the emptiness of their mentality, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is quit doing that. No longer walk as the unbeliever walks. And the implication is that believers clearly can live a life that is not discernibly different from an unbeliever because they are living in carnality and the power of the sin nature. So this is very important because it establishes two categories of life. It is the positional category, you are light, and it establishes the experiential category of walking consistently with your ultimate reality. So here we see the two spheres of operation, positional and experiential. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, The fruit, that is, karpos, the Greek, the production of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Just a real quick summary of the production of walking in the light, parallel to what we will see in Galatians 5. In fact, there's several parallels here that we'll come back to as we develop the study. But the production of walking in the light is comparable to the fruit of the Spirit. So here we see a parallel that walking in the light and walking by means of the Holy Spirit are tantamount to the same thing. And they both have the same production. Now, subpoints to point five. A. Light represents absolute perfection in the Scriptures whereas darkness represents all that has been tainted by sin. Light, in fact, represents the absolute righteousness and perfection of God. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. 1 John 1.5 says, And this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Darkness is completely incompatible with the perfection of God. Now this reminds us of the character of God. So let's go back and review the essence box. God is sovereign. God is absolute perfect righteousness. He is just and He is love. We'll just stop there and focus on these three. Remember what we've learned about the integrity of God. The righteousness of God is the absolute standard of His character. Absolute perfection. The justice of God is the application of the standard. And the love of God is the initiator within the essence box. So what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So when we look at it in terms of sin, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. Now think about this for a moment. When Adam and Eshaw were in the garden, and Adam ate the fruit, eating a piece of fruit doesn't rank in most people's categories of the ten worst sins. It's not like adultery. It's not like murder. It's not like mass murder or or genocide. In fact, it would probably not even be in the list of anybody's rank of sins. And yet what it involved was disobedience to a mandate of God. Therefore, it violated God's absolute perfection. So it doesn't matter how small, how little, how insignificant, how short in time a sinful act is. What matters is whether or not it violates the character of God. So any sin, no matter 
what it is, whether it's mental, whether it's overt, whether it's verbal, any sin that violates the character of God puts the believer in the realm of darkness. And then, so there is a break in fellowship with God. Because as 2 Corinthians says, what fellowship has light with darkness? Now let's continue our analysis here. Point A was that light represented absolute perfection and represented the absolute righteousness of God. B. We become sons of light at the moment of salvation. So that becomes a description of our position in Christ. That is, we have positional righteousness, the imputation of Christ's righteousness at the moment of salvation. Jesus said in John 12:36, "While you have the light, believe in the light." That's the issue of salvation. It's not works. It's not baptism, it's not joining the church, it's not having an experience, it is believing in Jesus Christ. Believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. And it's in the subjunctive mood because it's emphasizing your volition. Whether or not you believe in Christ determines whether or not you become classified as a son of light, which means to have Christ's righteousness. So we are transferred Positionally, this is point C, we are transferred positionally into light. We have to trace these metaphors. So important to understand a variety. We're going to see a fantastic one in the second hour. Just an incredible one that I don't find too many people articulating because it takes a little time and effort and most pastors just don't want to do that on a Sunday morning. We are transferred positionally into light. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So you have been called into light. That is your position as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and part of the positional realities that you have in the top circle. Acts 26.18 says, To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Me. Now that introduces the concept of inheritance. I skipped over it in Ephesians, but earlier in Ephesians 5, uh, back in about verse 5, there's also reference to inheritance. So inheritance is a crucial concept related to walking in the light, and we will develop that as we get in a little further into our study of Galatians 5. So we're transferred from darkness to light so that we can receive an in- forgiveness and an inheritance, Acts 26.18. And then Colossians 1.13, For He delivered us from the domain, and here we have the Greek word exousia, which means authority or power. He delivered us from the authority or power of darkness. Whether you realized it or not, when you were an unbeliever, you were under the authority and in the domain of Satan, the domain of darkness, no matter how good, how wonderful, how pleasing you were. And the same is true for everybody you know that is not a believer, including your children. You you as parents have a tremendous privilege and responsibility to be the ones to explain the gospel to your kids. And you should begin presenting that reading them nighttime stories before they go to bed at night from the Scriptures and preparing the soil for the introduction of the Gospel. At the point of salvation, we are delivered from the authority of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So all of this is to emphasize the simple point that positionally we are out of overhead scroll. Positionally, we are in the top circle. We are in the light. But not experientially, that follows from obeying the mandate, walk by means of the light. Point D. Scripture clearly affirms that believers still possess sin natures and thus still perform works of darkness. And even though they are sons of light, They can live in darkness. That's the point. 
The Bible affirms you still have a sin nature even though you are positionally a son of light. You can still perform deeds of darkness. Romans 13.12 says, The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. Now, Paul would not say, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness if we weren't performing deeds of darkness. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Point number E, important principle, light and darkness, therefore, are clearly seen as absolute, inconsistent categories. They are absolute but inconsistent categories. You are either light or darkness. You either walk in light or you walk in darkness. But being in the light and walking in the light are not the same thing. That's important. When we get to 1 John 1, that's going to be crucial to understanding that passage. You are either light or darkness. That relates to salvation. And you either walk in light or walk in darkness. That relates to the spiritual life. You can't be walking with one foot in both. Scripture says, what fellowship has light with darkness? They are mutually exclusive. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. How much sin violates the righteousness of God? Any sin violates the righteousness of God and has an impact on our relationship with God. It destroys our fellowship. Now, of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has the primary sphere of, uh, of operation in fellowship, the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So first and foremost, when we commit sin, any infraction that violates the character of God, it breaks fellowship with the Holy Spirit who is plus R, but since the Son and the Father are also plus R, it breaks fellowship with the entire Trinity. Now, the New Testament utilizes two different words to describe what happens to our relationship with the Holy Spirit at the moment of sin. The first is the phrase, quenching the Holy Spirit. You quench something, you quench a fire by putting it out. This is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And in the context, they are, man, they are commanded not to quench the Spirit, and then in the next verse, in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, they're told not to despise prophetic statements. Now, the immediate context of the command is you don't put out the Spirit because there's a relationship between the Holy Spirit and the giving of Scripture in prophecy. Well, prophecy has ceased now. We have the completed canon of Scripture, so the direct interpretation of that verse is that you quench the Spirit by ignoring or despising or treating lightly the mandates of Scripture. In terms of application, you do that any time you sin. You quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The second phrase that's used here to describe the destruction of our fellowship with God is in Ephesians 4.30, where we read, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And grieving the Holy Spirit is an anthropopathism, which is applying to God a human emotion in order to understand the policies of God, a human emotion which God does not possess. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, if we look at the context of that, we, let's go back to verse 28. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So if we compare the various categories there, we see that these overt sins and mental attitude sins and sins of the tongue are what grieves the Holy Spirit. So we quench the Holy Spirit and we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin and that moves us out of the bottom circle 
from walking in the light to walking in darkness, which is referred to in the Old English of the King James Version as carnality in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, and in the newer versions as being fleshly, operating in the power of the sin nature. Now, let's just make a couple of more observations on Ephesians 5 before we make a connection with 1 John, which is another crucial passage for understanding light and darkness. You were formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. And then we have production in verse 9, verse 10, motivation, pleasing the Lord. Verse 11, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Notice the analogy there. Light exposes sin. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper. This is a description of confession. Awake sleeper, rise from the dead. That is carnal death. And Christ will shine on you. That's fellowship. This is a quote from a popular hymn of the day. Verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Again, we have absolute categories. You're either walking as wise or unwise or a fool. And then all of this ends up in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Notice the context of Ephesians 5.18 deals with the metaphor of light and darkness. Fellowship with God, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Versus walking by means of the sin nature. Now turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And we'll begin to wrap this up. 1 John chapter 1. I don't want to stop now because we've built a case and we've got to hit the conclusion or we'll just lose it by next week. 1 John 1, three. John says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. So what's he talking about? He's talking about fellowship, specifically fellowship with God. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The emphasis here is that it is fellowship with God that is the basis for human fellowship. 1 John 1, 4, And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? If we say that we have fellowship with Him, that is, if we say that we are walking in the light, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, by looking at these other passages, we've already established that fellowship with God is analogous to walking in the light. Not, And there are so many people who will say walking in the darkness means an unbeliever. But we've seen that in the darkness, in the light, are positional. That has to do with salvation or the lack of it. Walking has to do with that practice, that experience of the bottom circle. You're either up here is in the light, out here an unbeliever is in the darkness. Here is walking in the light, out here is walking in darkness. If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet we are living in sin, any kind of sin, we're out of fellowship, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So you can't have Christian fellowship with someone who's in carnality. You can't have Christian fellowship with someone who is uh, out of fellowship with God. It's impossible. So that's why people, churches have these fellowship hours and they bandy that term about so much and yet it doesn't stack up to what Scripture says. In fact, most of the time fellowship in Scripture has to do with rapport with God and not social interaction among believers. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and you walk in... The, uh, let me see. First John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, this is the judicial function of the atonement. At the point of salvation, you were judicially cleansed from all, all pre-salvation sin. When you go throughout... Your spiritual life, I'm going to have to teach this more, I know. When you go throughout your spiritual life, every time you sin, you do not become guilty of spiritual, or you do not die spiritually again. Why don't you die spiritually again? Adam died spiritually when he sinned. 
Why don't you die spiritually again? Because the judicial function of the atonement continually applies day in and day out. It's not experiential. I'm not talking about experiential forgiveness. I'm talking about judicial forgiveness. Because of judicial forgiveness, the blood of Christ continually keeps you from having to go through spiritual death again. That's eternal security. Now, there is a distinction that must be made between judicial forgiveness and experiential forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness, what happened at the cross, is the basis for experiential forgiveness. Experiential forgiveness is covered in 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then 1.9, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, that's experiential forgiveness. There are a lot of people who are teaching some funny things about this that, and looking at some passages, and I think that we just don't have time. I'm going to have to come back and do this a little more, spend a little more time on this in the next hour. I thought we could get through it this morning, but we don't. But this is too important just to run through. So we'll wrap up here and come back and finish talking about walking in the light and what this means and wrap up our introduction to walking next Sunday with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you so much for the clarity of your word to understand a phrase that so many people do not understand, and that is what it means to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, that we have this unique spiritual endowment and this unique spiritual empowerment in this age, that our life with you is indeed a unique life, a supernatural life, and you have given us a supernatural basis for it. Now help us as we understand these things, that we may be challenged by the doctrines that we've learned today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.